Well, as we join with those of you in the Community Life Center, I want to take a moment before we proceed just to offer my heartfelt gratitude to you, the congregation, and to God for the incredible week we had together in Vacation Bible School. Um, we had over 500 children registered, close to that many in attendance every day. Another 200 youth and adult volunteers who worked effortlessly uh, behind, well not effortlessly, but tirelessly perhaps is a better way to put it, uh, behind the scenes, uh, serving in so many capacities. And while those numbers are impressive, what's more important is what's behind those numbers. And those are the individual children and the unique families that we had the opportunity to connect with. At the end of the week, we had roughly a dozen older children who made faith decisions, some of them uh, deciding to receive Jesus for the very first time and will be seeking baptism soon. Then in the evenings, our youth came back together for youth vacation Bible school, close to 100 youth in attendance, another 20 college students and young adults who came to serve as small group leaders and worship leaders. Uh, and it was just beautiful all week long to watch the church be the church, to watch people step up and use their gifts uh, to serve in a variety of ways. And I believe the kingdom of God became even more visible this week because of our combined efforts. So thank you for all that you did and for all the generosity that you provide throughout the year that makes ministries like that possible. And now I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes, a book we don't often pay much attention to, at least not in worship. But today, as we come to a conclusion in this series on simplicity, we're going to look at some unique words in Scripture out of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. I would invite you to join me and follow along as we read verses 1 through 14. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A 
chasing after the wind. And though it may sound odd to say it, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, maybe you've noticed a curious thing that happens when you find yourself in conversation with someone new. You exchange a few pleasantries, you offer your name, a few other basic pieces of information about yourself, and then somewhere pretty quickly the conversation turns to this question. So, what do you do for a living? Now, when I answer that question, it's usually a conversation stopper right there, but that's another point for another day. Now, I find that an interesting thing to ask because of all the things we might want to know about this new person, somehow we think that knowing what they do for a living is among the most important. And I guess in some ways it's appropriate because work does comprise a huge portion of our lives. If you have a full-time job outside the home, you will spend more waking hours at work than you will at home. Even more significantly, work is part of God's design for humanity. In Genesis 2, even before Adam and Eve sinned, God had already given them work to do to care for the garden. So productive labor is somehow a part of God's design for humanity. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. But like everything else about our human condition, work has been corrupted by sin. And that expresses itself in a lot of ways, but one of the results is that work, our jobs, our careers, have become a sort of idol for us. And we start to assume that the jobs we do say something fundamental about our purpose, our identity, and our value. Which leaves us with a bit of a problem. If our identity and our purpose is tied to our job, then what becomes of us when for some reason we can no longer do that job? What happens if we get fired? Or if our company goes out of business? What happens if... Um, if we get sick or, or we get injured and we're suddenly no longer able to work the way we once did, what happens when we retire? And what about the unemployed and those who are unemployable? What becomes of us when those circumstances come to pass? Now, we're not here this morning to do vocational counseling. I raise the question of work because I believe it points to a deeper existential question that all of us face, no matter our career path, where do we find meaning and identity and purpose? What is it to which we look to say, there, that's what I am, that's who I am, that's what my life is about? Maybe you're someone for whom work has never done that for you. Maybe for you, your job is just a job and that's fine. But we all have some place we look to find identity and purpose. Maybe it's in the, edu uh, the educational degree we've earned. Maybe it's in the wealth we've accumulated and the lifestyle that it enables us to live. Maybe it's in the social status we have attained. Maybe 
it's in the family that we are a part of. Maybe it's some accomplishment we've achieved or some honor that we have received or some award that we have been given. But if so, what becomes of us when those things are gone? Because there's a pretty good chance that at some point they will be. That's the question that lies behind the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. It is an extremely unique book because the writer is pursuing a deep and existential question. Where do we find meaning? Where is there anything of lasting value that can bring eternal purpose into our lives? That's the driving question, but you probably have already noticed that it is written with a bit of a negative tone, a bit of skepticism, a bit of, well, unhappiness, let's say. That's because no matter where the writer who assume, we assume is King Solomon, no matter where he looks for an answer, he keeps running into the same basic problem. No matter where he turns, no matter what he does, no matter how much he accomplishes, he understands that it will eventually all fade away. Doesn't matter whether we are rich or poor, learned or uneducated, wise or foolish, we all face the same fate. And so as the book proceeds, he explores all the various things that might lead to a meaningful and lasting outcome. He talks, for example, about the search for wisdom and knowledge. All else being equal, it is better to be wise than foolish, but he discovers that the more he comes to know about the world, the more confounding and confusing the questions become, and that both the wise man and the fool face the same fate. In chapter 1, verse 13, what we just read, he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden, God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. He looks for meaning in the pursuit of worldly pleasures. But he discovers soon that that doesn't hold much eternal usefulness either. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, to write, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He sought purpose in toil and in labor, in what we would call a profession or a career. But then he concludes in chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to someone who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. He sought identity and riches, but in chapter 5, verse 10, he realizes an important truth when he writes, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. So we've got this long litany of things that we could pour ourselves into, things that we might want to pursue in hopes of finding something of lasting value but they all leave us empty-handed and they don't provide the kind of eternal purpose that we want. 
And so that's right, right out of the chute, right in chapter 1, verse 1, he begins by writing meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. How uplifting. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Now at some point, you stop and wonder, why is this stuff even in the Bible? This doesn't sound like the kind of uplifting and encouraging stuff we claim to be looking for in Scripture. But while on the surface it may not sound hopeful, I think it is. And at the very least, it is extremely helpful. Because Ecclesiastes gives us the kind of refreshing honesty we need to take a truthful look at ourselves. The things we cling to. The things that we assume will bring purpose and value. They mostly will one day fail us. And if we have put all of our stock into those things, we'll be left with nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to put effort and energy into the things of life. Even the writer of Ecclesiastes says that within proper limits and proper balances, there is something right and good about enjoying the things and the activities and the endeavors that make up our lives. In chapter 2, verse 24, he writes, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from God, for without Him... Who can eat or find enjoyment? I think of how that impacts my own life. I love my job. And I plan to keep doing it with all the energy and creativity I have or as long as you will let me. But I know there will come a day when I won't do this job anymore. What then? I love my role as a parent. My wife and I have the privilege of raising two teenage girls and that brings with it its own set of challenges but also its own set of joys and a community that I find with other parents who are at similar stages of life and there's great satisfaction for us in that but I also know there will come a day when both of those girls will grow up and move out of the house. I hope. Then what? Who will I be then when I don't have that to give myself to? I'm blessed to enjoy good health. And I love the activities and the lifestyle that my health enables me to lead. And I plan to remain as active and as energetic for as long as I possibly can. But I also know that there will come a day when my health will fail me. Then who will I be? The book of Ecclesiastes forces us all to ask those kinds of questions. And that's why we're using these words to bring our discussion about simplicity to a close because it will force us to re-examine the values and the virtues upon which we build our lives. See, our instinct is to base our lives and our purpose on our accomplishments, on our achievements, and upon the things that we are able to pursue. But the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us those things won't last. 
we need something else in their place. If you will recall how we began this series a few weeks ago in the 10th chapter of Luke's Gospel when Jesus sits down for dinner at the home of Mary and Martha and he says to Martha, you are pursuing many things. But there is really only one thing you need. So how do we cut through all the stuff that distracts us and consumes our efforts and our energies and refocus ourselves on that one thing that brings us life, namely the presence of the living God? Well, to help us get there, I want to share something with you this morning that I recently found that, that I believe is interesting and helpful and while it may not be gospel truth, it is useful nonetheless. David Brooks is a, a well-known political commentator. Maybe you've read some of his stuff in the New York Times or have heard some interviews with him on the radio. But a few years back, he ventured out of the realm of politics to engage in some soul-searching in his own life. And coming out of that experience, he wrote a book entitled The Road to Character. And in that book, he makes a helpful distinction. He distinguishes between two different kinds of virtues or attributes. He distinguishes between what on the one hand he calls resume virtues and what on the other hand he calls eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the skills and abilities we bring to the marketplace. Resume virtues are about how good or skilled we are at, at performing tasks, meeting goals, getting things done, being productive, accomplishing stuff. And as such, resume virtues have their place. They are important. If you are the surgeon who is about to operate on me, I want to know that you have perfected your resume virtue as a surgeon. That's pretty important to me. If you're the mechanic who's installing the brakes on my wife's car, I want to know that you are competent and up-to-date on the latest technologies and techniques that you have perfected your resume virtues because her life depends upon it. Resume virtues are important. The things that we can accomplish and get done in life do make a difference. The problem is that these resume virtues usually say very little about the kind of people we are or about the kind of people we aspire to become. You may be the best engineer, the most accomplished scholar, the most skilled craftsman, or the most celebrated athlete. But that tells me very little about whether or not you are the kind of person I want to allow into my life. That tells me very little about whether you are the kind of person I want to sit down at the breakfast table with for a cup of coffee because few of those things touch on your true character. Eulogy virtues, on the other hand, he says, have to do with the kinds of things people will say about us at our funeral. In case you're unfamiliar with the process, let me tell you how it will work. There will come a day when you will die 
And when that happens, and people will gather together here at the church or in a funeral home chapel somewhere, they will say a few things about you, they will take you out, bury you in a hole, and then they will come back to the church and eat fried chicken. That's what your life will come to, so just prepare yourself for that. But for those few moments, when you've got everybody's attention, what is it that you want them to say about you? Do we want them to remember how many hours of overtime we racked up? Do we want them to talk about how many sales calls we made? Or how many frequent flyer miles we accumulated? Do we want our eulogy to focus on the degrees we earned? Or the success of our investment portfolio? Do we want people's abiding memories of us to be how driven we were or how fast we climbed the ladder or how good we were at golf? I'm thinking probably not. We would probably rather hear folks say that we were kind or that we were gentle or that we were compassionate. We would probably rather have people remember that we were loyal or that we were reliable or that we were consistent. We probably want our lasting legacy to revolve around how generous we were or how loving we were or how welcoming we were. The problem is all the energies we pour into developing our resume virtues will not necessarily bring about any of those eulogy virtues. Sometimes there is a connection, but they are not automatic. It is not a given. We will only develop our eulogy virtues if we are intentional about it and if we clear out space in our lives to focus on what truly matters. Of course, David Brooks wasn't the first one to come up with that insight. He simply found a, a new way to express an old, old truth. A long, long time ago, almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a group of early Christians. We know it as the New Testament book of Galatians. In chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he talks about something he calls the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk about those beginning next week. He says the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good eulogy to me. If when I die, people say those things about me, then I would have to think that somehow my life did, in fact, have some sort of lasting value. Now, the key to understanding this is to realize these are fruit of the Spirit. These are the workings of the Holy Spirit. When we become born-again believers, God places His Spirit in us. And as the Spirit moves and works, He reforms our character, and these are the results. And so, we cannot manufacture these virtues by our own efforts. We can, however, block them and keep them from developing. If we do not give adequate space in our lives for these things to grow, then we will choke them out. 
That's why I like what another author said in a recent article for the Atlantic magazine. Another author, Arthur Brooks, no relation, suggests that we need to develop what he calls a reverse bucket list. You know what a bucket list is, all the things you still want to accomplish and achieve before you die. He says we need a reverse bucket list. That each year for the rest of our lives we should endeavor to get rid of something. To get rid of a thing, a possession, an obligation, an ambition, a desire. Clear out some of the unnecessary stuff. Now, psychologically, what does that do? It creates mental and emotional space for us to focus on more important things. Spiritually, with each removal, we create a little more space for the Holy Spirit to work. Which brings us back to that question. What are we building our lives on? If we build them around our efforts, our achievements, our accomplishments, our goodness our character, then it will be built around something that in the end will fail. If, however, we build it around a quest for the heart and the character of God, then ours will be a life that will matter no matter what. I know a man who spent most of his professional career with the same company. It was a small, mostly family-owned operation, but it had built a niche for itself in a competitive market and over the years had been pretty successful. And this man was a big part of the company's success. Over the years, with his ingenuity and his hard work, he had helped them to develop new techniques and new technologies that kept this small business on the cutting edge and kept them competitive from one season to the next. The owner of the company recognized that, understood that, and so he repeatedly promised this man that the company would always be there to take care for him, of him out of gratitude for what he had given. And so he continued to pour himself with more and more passion into his work. Then one day the owner of the company got sick and died much sooner than anyone expected. Upon his death, the company passed to his son. And the son, who knew nothing of the promises his father had made, saw an opportunity, and so he sold the company at a huge personal profit, and the operation ceased. And the man who had given decades of his life, and who had been given all those promises, was left without even so much as a gold watch. Now, does that invalidate the work that he did? No. And fortunately, this man was also committed to building character in other parts of his life. But his story does serve as a cautionary tale. The things that we assume will just always be there, that will guarantee us permanence, those things can be gone in an instant. And then what do we have? It doesn't mean we need to live in fear. It doesn't mean that we should withdraw from the world. It doesn't mean that we should disengage from all the necessary activities of life. Please, please, please do not go out of here and quit your job today because of this sermon. 
but we do need to pay attention to where we are investing the bulk of our energies. Always striving to do more, to get more, to earn more, to accomplish more might make us better at doing our jobs. But it will not necessarily mean that we are becoming the kind of people that God has called us to be. A life of lasting influence is a life that pursues God's heart. A life that seeks to be like Him. And so, what needs to go in order to make room for that to happen? Let's pray together. Father God, we are amazed when we look at the life of Jesus who always had more pressing in on Him than any one person could ever accomplish. And yet He was never in a hurry, never at a loss for compassion, never seemed to exhaust the resources of eternal love which He embodied. We confess, O oh God, that we are so prone to be short-sighted, to develop tunnel vision. We only see what's right in front of us and we lose sight of the bigger picture to which you have called us. Help us again to catch a glimpse this morning of the kind of people you desire for us to be. A people who reflect the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, who even in the face of death did not seem to exhaust the resources of grace and mercy. And because of that, and only because of that, do we have eternal life. Call us back to that one thing. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We should pursue excellence in every area of our lives. We ought to do nothing out of a spirit of apathy or mediocrity. But we should always also keep the main thing the main thing. To stay focused on the living presence of God and the kind of person He's calling us to be. As we've already stated, that really can't begin until Jesus is in us, dwelling in us. If that's not happened for you, if you've not taken that step of faith of declaring Him Lord, and as we sing, I would invite you to come forward. We'll pray together as you begin that journey. But all of us have been called to be his people. Let's stand and worship him together.